The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Good morning. I'm glad to be with you today and excited to open to Matthew 26. It's a privilege to be able to spend time together in the Word. Uh, Verses 36 to 46 is where we'll be focusing today. So please do turn there with me that we might read the Word of God together. As you turn to the end of Matthew, I want to ask how you prepare for a big day. Maybe it's the championship game for your sports team, the big final exam, there's an interview for your dream promotion, maybe it's even your wedding day, your first day of college, whatever it is, how do you prepare for a big day? Do you eat a big meal? Do you get a good night's rest? Do you work out? Do you listen to some pump-up jams, perhaps by Simon and Garfunkel or Natasha Bedingfield? No? Those are my go-tos. Well, them and the Jackson 5, you put them on and it just lights out. Just <laughs> How you prepare says a lot, not only about the significance of the day in front of you, but also about you yourself, where your priorities are at, what you think is beneficial, what, what is worthy of your limited preparation time. Our passage today focuses on Jesus preparing for the most important day of his life. In our story, it's Thursday night and it's late. He has celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. He has instituted the Lord's Supper. He's taught them to love one another as he loved them. And in a few hours, he'll be arrested, tried in court, Sentenced to death on a cross, beaten brutally, nailed to said cross, and die a slow death. How would you prepare for such a day? Jesus prepared by praying, which if you've studied his life, won't come as much of a surprise. Here's how Tim Keller sums his life of prayer. He he prayed constantly. He taught his disciples to pray. He healed with prayers, denounced the corruption of the temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer. He insisted some demons can only be cast out through prayer. He prayed with fervent cries and tears, sometimes all night, was anointed by the Holy Spirit while praying, transfigured with divine glory as he prayed, and even died praying. Prayer was of utmost significance for our Lord. It was essential to his ministry, and it reflected the intimate relationship he had with his Father. My fear is that we do not share that high importance of prayer with Jesus. I know in my own life, prayer is far more optional than I'd care to admit. Sure, I I know I should pray, and I do pray, but I feel as if there is lacking in this department, at least for me. And so I know I desire to grow in prayer. So this morning, we're going to take a look at some of the most significant, honest, important prayers of all time and seek to learn about how we might become a people of prayer. Our main point this morning will be that Jesus' prayers both model his relationship with his Father and show us how to pray. So Jesus' prayer model his relationship with his Father, with his Father, and how we should pray. So it only seems fitting that we pray to begin our time together. 
Father, I thank you for the joy that it is to gather together. And as we devote these time, these minutes to your word, Lord, that you would move me aside, that you would speak directly to the people here, that your spirit would move in hearts and minds, that we might grow in our love for you and in how we display your glory to the world. God, be near to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it, is, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, We'll divide this passage into four sections. First, we see Matthew setting the stage. Uh, he gets us to Gethsemane, gets all the people in place, gives us insight into how Jesus was feeling. And then there are three cycles of praying. It's Jesus prays, the disciples sleep, and then Jesus teaches. And we see that three times. So let's begin back in verse 36 with our first point, setting the stage. So verse 36 picks up after the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper have ended. Uh, Peter and the other disciples have already promised Jesus never to deny him. Uh, and then they leave that upper room to go to the Mount of Olives on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And at the base of this mountain, we're not thinking Mount Everest, hill, uh, there's a particular garden where the olives gathered on said mount are uh, ground up. They're, they're turned into olive oil. Gethsemane could translate olive press. So that's where they gather. And he, Jesus instructs eight of his disciples to, to stay there. Remember, we're down to 11 because Judas Iscariot has already gone off to betray Jesus. So eight of them, he says, stay here. And then he goes along further, but brings three more with him. These are the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. They're the same ones that he brought with him to his uh, transfiguration in Matthew 17. And so he brings them with him to this next place in the garden. And here's where Matthew begins to share with us what Jesus is feeling. Look at verse 37. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he, he shares those sorrows with his disciples in verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So I want us to understand three things about this. I want to understand what Jesus was experiencing, why he was experiencing it, and how he could experience it. And then we'll, we'll dive into our, our cycles of prayer. So, so first, what Jesus was experiencing. He was experiencing deep, severe anguish. 
the, the words that Matthew and then Jesus himself use are striking. He was sorrowful, troubled, distressed, grieved. Th- this language is intentionally similar to that of Psalm 42, verse 5, where the psalmist cries out, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then Luke, in, in his account of these prayers, he writes that Jesus was in agony. And in chapter 22, verse 44, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So this is not getting a stomach ache because you're worried about what tomorrow will hold. This is not stress eating a sleeve of Oreos or retreating back to your favorite show. Here is a man who is brought to his absolute limit. He is distressed to his core. Brings us to the second, why? Why was Jesus experiencing such strong affliction? Well, we, we know what's about to happen. And we know that Jesus knew what was about to happen. He was about to die one of the most horrific deaths humanly possible. Now, we're not going to get into the details of how crucifixion worked, but suffice it to say it was created, it was crafted to produce the slowest, most painful death possible. Now, now that alone would be enough to make any person distressed, but I'm, I'm not convinced that is the source of Jesus's turmoil. You see, over the past 2,000 years, countless Christians have died for their faith. Men and women have given their lives for their Lord, and many of them have done so joyfully, singing songs as they were burnt at the stake, rejoicing that they would be considered worthy to die for their Savior. So are, are they more brave than their Savior? Well, no. It, it was not the physical pain and death that awaited Jesus which brought such grief upon him. It, it was spiritual. Because Jesus was not simply going to die in 12 or so hours. He was going to die for the sins of the world. He was going to bear the wrath of God that you and me and each of us deserve. He was going to experience a separation from his father that he had never known before. This is what brought him such anguish, and it is this that drove him to prayer. So that's what he experienced and why he experienced it. But one more thing before we dive into to the prayer. How, how could Jesus experience this? Because if you're thinking with me, all right, we believe there's one God. We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that God planned for Jesus to die for the sins of all who would believe in him. So, so how could Jesus then become so distressed about what he had planned to do since before the foundations of the earth? Well, that's because Jesus, as the God-man, has two wills. You see, Jesus is fully God, meaning he has a divine nature, a divine will, because if he didn't, he, he wouldn't be fully God. But at the same time, he is fully human, which means he has a human nature, as we do. His is unstained from sin, but he has a human nature, human will, or else he wouldn't really be human. And as someone who is fully human, in his human will, he did not desire to go through the suffering awaiting him. Now, we will see shortly that Jesus quickly puts those desires aside for the sake of his Father's plan, but, but that Jesus experienced these desires is because, while well, yes, he is fully God, he is also fully human. And so he identifies with us in that way. So let's focus now for the rest of our time on what Jesus does with those desires. Let's look at verse 39 where we see our second point, his first prayer cycle. Jesus prays alone, the disciples sleep, 
and then Jesus teaches. So we, we begin with his prayer in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want to break that prayer down line by line. So, my father. Now, here is the first of multiple connections to the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, the the Lord's Prayer. My father is just Jesus' personal version of our father. And as we continue, be on the lookout for more connections to that prayer. So he, he begins, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus asks his father, if it's possible, remove his wrath from Jesus. That's what this cup is. We saw it a few weeks ago, if you were here, when we went through Obadiah, and we saw God proclaiming that wicked Edom, the nation of Edom, would have to drink the cup of his wrath for what they had done. Now, they, they deserved to drink the wrath. Here, we have the least deserving person of all time, the, the sinless son of God. He is to drink it. Well, unless his father removes it. And by asking if it be possible, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't sure if God can do it. God, I don't know if you're able to do this, so if it's possible. No, he's not asking if you're able, he's asking if you're willing. Which we see clearly in the final part of his prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he desires but he does not desire to do everything. Jesus knows this, and he commits here fully to comply with his Father's will. What a model of prayer. Jesus makes his true, his honest request known to God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, is is this how we pray? Are we humble enough to add if it be your will, to to our prayers? Or are we too wrapped up in what we desire that we don't stop to consider whether it's what God desires as well? If Jesus himself modified his own request with this qualification, how much more ought we to do the same? Not not because just simply tagging that on to the end of our prayers makes it magically better, pray, 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 if it be your will, amen, yes, no, Because praying in this way reveals a heart that puts God's will before our own. That's what Jesus is doing here. So he offers this first prayer to his father. And then verse 40 tells us he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, which just, of course, they were, if you've read the Gospels and know about them. In his hour of greatest trial, of deepest sorrows, his closest followers, Peter and James and John, are asleep which is a marked contrast to where they were just a few verses ago. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Couldn't even stay awake an hour. So Jesus wakes them, and and, and here's what he says to them. So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So in Jesus' eyes, an hour of prayer was not an unrealistic expectation for his closest disciples. And so he teaches them to do two things to avoid temptation. Watch and pray. To watch, in this case, is to be aware of potential dangers. To be on the lookout for hidden desires. On guard against anything that might draw you away from God. 
And then, of course, to pray is to, to then turn to God with those concerns and say, I can't handle them on my own. Help me. And so if we are to avoid temptation, we must watch and pray as well. And then he closes this first teaching with a familiar line, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Which is to say that oftentimes our internal desire to do what God wants is met with a, a weakness, a, a slothfulness, a, a, a sluggishness, a lack of stamina to fulfill that desire and live it out. Here's an example of, of that. Have you ever been to youth camp or been on a mission trip? So you spend a, a week away from home actively serving God, sun up to sundown. You're reading your Bible more than ever. You're praying more than ever. You're sharing the gospel more than ever. You get home and you just feel different. You, oh, I'm going to keep this up. I'm going to keep reading my Bible. I'm going to keep doing all these things. And, and you do. You maintain that momentum for a few days. And then the regular habits and rhythms of life take back over. And the next thing you know, you're in the exact position you were before you left. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, so please don't hear this line as, as a silly excuse to eat another bowl of ice cream after dinner. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. No, this is a somber warning that Jesus issues to his disciples then and now. We all must be alert to things external and internal that will keep us from doing the will of God. So this ends this first cycle of prayer, bringing us to our second cycle of prayer, our third point, verses 42 and 43. Let's pick up in 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, in this, in the second prayer, there is a subtle but significant shift that Jesus makes from his first prayer. It begins the same way, my father, but there's no request for the cup to pass. There's no qualifier of, well, nevertheless, it seems Jesus has recognized it is not his father's will that he avoid what awaits him. And so rather than in any way press against that will or try to find a, a way out of it, he prays even more directly than in his first, what, first prayer, your will be done, which is the exact phrase he taught in the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus is practicing what he preached or he's praying what he taught us to pray. In this second prayer, Jesus completely humbles himself. He totally surrenders to his, surrenders his own desires before the will of his heavenly Father. So once again, I want to ask, is that how we pray? In particular, is that how we pray after our most recent prayer was just answered no? Is our response to turn around and say, your will be done? Pray it would be. So this is Jesus' second prayer and then continues again with disciples sleeping in verse 43. And again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. I mean, all right, so these are regular guys, right? First time, you can almost understand. All right, it's, it's been a long day. It's late at night. They're in a garden. They fall asleep. All right, Jesus wakes them up, gives them this great pep talk. Hey, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All right, we're ready to go, Jesus. Round two. They're out like a light. It, it says that their eyes were heavy, which interestingly enough is exactly how they were described at the transfiguration when these same three dudes, Peter, James, and John, f fell asleep then too. Uh, you can read Luke 9 for more of that. But, but the point is, once again, they're asleep. But here's where Matthew uh, breaks with his cycle. So we've seen Jesus praying, disciples sleeping, Jesus teaching. Jesus praying, disciples sleeping, 
but Jesus just goes back to prayer. The, the second cycle breaks here and ends, which brings us to our third prayer cycle, verses 44 to 46. Let's read verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Matthew doesn't record what this third prayer is, but he doesn't have to because it's, it's the same as Jesus' second prayer, showing Jesus repeatedly prayed, thing, prayed for the same things to his Father. So Jesus prays again, and then we return to our sleepy disciples in verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. Now, now your translation might have it a little bit differently than mine, which, which is totally fine, because the, the language here is, is somewhat ambiguous. Um, Jesus could be asking them a rhetorical question. Are you still sleeping and resting? Or, or perhaps he's making a, a frustrated observation. You're still sleeping? He could be making more of a sarcastic command. Oh, no, go, go ahead. Keep, keep, on, keep on sleeping and resting. Or very simply, he could just be saying, stop sleeping now. You can sleep later. Whatever your translation has, however you take it, the point is sleep time is over, time for y'all to wake up. Which gives us Jesus' final statement of the passage. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You notice that shift in Jesus' tone? A few, views, few verses ago, he was sorrowful and troubled. Or here, he's, he's resolute. He is unflinching in sharing with his followers exactly what is about to happen. Now, now this shift from Jesus is, is not because the source of his sorrow has been removed. In fact, he, he tells us it's at hand. The shift is because of the power of prayer. Jesus is aware God is with him and is sovereign over even these most tragic of events. And this buoys Jesus, this supports him to, to face what his father, as well as these sinners, have in store for him. You see, petitionary prayer, the, the prayers Jesus is offering here, it's just when you make petitions to God, you ask for something or for him to do something. It's what Pastor Brian does each week during his pastoral prayer. That, that's the, the petitionary prayer, just a fancy term for it. Those types of prayers always have two sides. There's an external and an internal. External, we're asking God to do something or asking God for something. God, heal this relationship, provide for my family, bring peace, ask for something. But there's also an internal component where our prayers work to align our hearts with God. We saw this back in Jesus' first prayer. External, ask God to act, let this cup pass from me. But then the internal, heart work the prayer is doing. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, we, we know that God chose not to act as Jesus requested externally, but we see here that Jesus' heart was fully aligned with God here in verse 45. So for us, if, if God doesn't answer your prayers the way you hoped he would, don't think those were worthless prayers. Ah, oh, well, God said no, so I just wasted my time. No, no, no. Consider how God has been working on your heart, where your heart is in relation to his, with the goal of, of moving it as close to his as Jesus' was with it here. He says, see, the hour is at hand. Now, now this hour marks both the time that Jesus' betrayer was to arrive, but, but it also speaks to 
the fact that the time of his death, the event of his death has arrived. That hour has come. This is something you see throughout John's gospel. Um, it starts all the way back in John 2, where he's at the wedding of Canaan. He turns to his mom and says, my hour has not yet come. And then this idea of my hour, it runs throughout the book all the way until this moment when the process of his crucifixion, of his atoning death would begin. Jesus knew it was coming. He'd been proclaiming that it would come, and now it has arrived. There would be no turning back. The events that would lead to Jesus' death on the cross and subsequently that would lead to the salvation of multitudes are now in motion. And so Jesus and his disciples rise to meet the will of God in action. My betrayer is at hand. Now on the surface, this is a tragedy. Jesus, who who loved all with perfect love, who never sinned, not even once was about to die, a horrific, brutal, a a criminal's death on the cross. And before we close, I want to make sure we understand why. Try to get under, I mean, foundationally, it's because this is the will of God, which Jesus is, is submitting himself to. But the reason why God wills that Jesus die on the cross is us. It's you and me and our sin. Each of us is sinful through and through. Not just a little bit, but totally, completely sinful. And that sin both separates us from God, who is perfect, holy, and sinless, and it carries a cost, our own death. We, we deserve to die for the sins we have committed and continue to commit. We have sinned against the holy God, the sovereign king of the universe. But that holy God and sovereign king with his great love sent Jesus to live the perfect life meaning he had no sin of his own to pay for he didn't have to to cover his own burden and then help us no he was guiltless he was perfect and so when he died he was able to take our sin and pay for it himself that we might have life with him forever in glory but there's something I, I want to make sure we hit on this because I, I think, I know in my sharing of the gospel, I can almost gloss over this. The, the good news of, of Jesus' death and then resurrection are not just good news for, for then. It's not as if, you know, when you give your life to Jesus, you get this get-out-of-hell-free card and you just put it in your pocket until you die. And then when you do die, you say, ha, I got this card. No, Jesus' death on the cross affects us in every aspect of our lives here and now. So if you are lonely... He is with you now and forever. He will never leave you, and his spirit will dwell inside of you. If you are struggling with sin, he will grant you total and complete forgiveness now. Not, okay, well, I know I'm good that day. No, today. And if you are uncertain of where to find your identity, of who you are, well, he will bring you into his father's house today. He will make you a co heir with him, bring you into his family along with many brothers and sisters. Don't think the gospel of Jesus only matters at the end of our lives. It matters every moment of every day from now into eternity. If you want to talk more about this, please grab me. I will buy you lunch. I will buy you breakfast. We will stay up late. I don't care. I would love to talk to you about this. This would make my day. Jesus paid the price of your sin so you don't have to. Would you give your life to him today? So we've seen through this passage that Jesus' prayers model his relationship with his Father, 
as well as how we should pray. So I want to end our time by recapping this passage with three prayer-related takeaways that we can all leave here with. So, So here's the first one, okay? This comes from Jesus's first prayer in verse 39. Be honest with God. Even though Jesus is God the Son, God himself, he is still honest. He still shares his heart with his Father. And we should too. God already knows your heart. He knows exactly where you are at. So you can be totally and completely honest with him. Second takeaway from Jesus' second prayer, verse 42, submit your will to God. Jesus' desire was that God change his plan of salvation to spare him from the death he was about to face. And yet he submitted even his will to God. So if that means changing your spending habits and not buying that new thing you've had your eye on, ending the relationship that you enjoy but you know doesn't bring glory to God, no longer keeping your mouth shut when that loved one continues in sin, even though it's going to be really awkward, Submit your will to God. May we all pray open-handed prayers. Does that phrase make sense? So close-handed prayer. God, here's what I want. Give it to me. Give it to me, God. I want this. God, give it. God. Open-handed. Lord, here's where I'm at. Here's, here's my heart. But your will. God, what do I need in my life? Where are my blind spots? What am I missing? May we pray open-handed prayers, submitting our wills to him. Third and finally, from Jesus' final prayer in verse 44, continually bring your prayers to God. Jesus never said, well, nope, I prayed this once, so I'll never speak it again. Speak of it again. No, two verses later, he's repeating the same words again. So like the midnight traveler or the persistent widow in Jesus' parables, Luke 11, Luke 18, let us repeatedly bring our requests to God. Now, here's the important modifier here, always in submission to his will. If God has already answered your prayer clearly in one way, there's no sense in continually asking him to answer it in a different way. But, but do not hesitate to bring your prayers to God again and again. That's what Jesus did. And so may we be more and more like him in all areas, especially prayer. I'm going to close with the, the lines from the song our praise team opened our service with. It's a, it's a beautiful song called Your Will Be Done. We'll, we'll be learning it over the next few weeks. Listen to these words. How in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know. The fearful weight of true obedience, it was held by him alone. What wondrous faith to bear that cross, to bear my sin, what wondrous love, My hope was sure when there my Savior prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. When I am lost, when I am broken in the night of fear and doubt, still I will trust in my good Father. Yes, to one great King I bow. As Jesus rose, so I shall rise in ransom glory at the throne. My heart restored with all your saints I sing, Father, not my will, but yours be done. May that be our prayer today and every day. God, we see, we see your Son, our Savior, bearing his soul the night before he was to die in our place. God, we are humbled by the love that he displayed, by the humility, by the sacrifice. And yet, God, at least I am then in turn disgusted by my own self-centeredness. 
God, how slowly I am to part with even mild comforts for the sake of your name. How tightly I hold to my own desires. God, make me like Jesus. Loosen my grip on my own will. God, I want to submit to you. We want to submit to you. We know that you are God. You are holy. You are perfect. You know better than we do. And yet, we keep thinking the opposite. God, we are unable to improve on this through our own will, through our own efforts. And so, God, we throw ourselves at your feet, asking you to have mercy on us. God, you have shown time and again that you are good, that you are patient, that you are loving. And so we ask for those things to apply to our hearts in this way, that in our prayers we might be like Jesus, that we might be tools for you to use however you see fit, that we would live blank check lives before you, going where you call us, doing what you call us to do, even if it's hard, even if it's unpopular, even if it's costly, God, we want to live for you. For you sent Jesus to die for us. God, may we not walk out of here with a renewed effort to pray better, but with a humble awe of how Jesus prayed that we might be like him. God, be near to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.